Welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I am very excited because it is June, and uh, as you know, I often complain about the weather here in Massachusetts, and it seems to finally have turned a corner, and so we skipped spring altogether and went straight for the warm weather. Um, There is a lot going on right now in the world of college admissions. It seems like we get new revelations every day about uh, varsity blues, That scandal continues to develop and seems to be a little bit more far-reaching, and we will cover that in the future. We're not going to be talking about that today, but I am going to talk a little bit about um, my thoughts on this new adversity score that was announced by the College Board um, a couple of weeks ago, Uh, and we're also going to be getting to your listener questions today, and we have lots of good ones there, so I'm excited about that, Um, but Before we get to all of that, for those students who are about to embark on an internship or some other type of summer experience, um, I'm excited to welcome Lauren DiProspero, who is a former admissions officer at Columbia and Stanford Universities, and she's going to talk with us about making the most of that summer experience. Hi, Lauren. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Excited to have you here. And I think this topic is really interesting because we talk a lot about finding interesting summer opportunities, whether that is a part-time job or even a full-time job or uh, doing uh, sports camps or whatever it is that you're going to be doing with your summer, we encourage students to have interesting experiences. And one of those could be an internship or you're going to go and do a special program somewhere. But we rarely talk about the actual experience. And I'm excited about this idea of sharing with our readers or our listeners, sorry, not our readers, but our listeners um, thoughts about, um, about how to approach the actual experience. And so I think my question for you is um, where is, where do you suggest that students start in terms of making the most of their summer experience? Yeah, I mean, I think that the place to start is think about what do you want to gain from your experience, whatever that might be, because that can help you focus uh, your summer and um, really help, I think, improve what you're going to get out of your experience. Because if you go in without a plan or sort of an, an expectation, um, it can be really hard to, to figure out what am I supposed to gain from this experience. And, you know, for some students, they might have known what their goal is going to be since they started thinking about what to do over the summer, right? For others, you know, maybe they're less sure or maybe they just sort of happened into their summer plans. And I think that, you know, some students maybe they don't think that there's anything to be gained because maybe they're just doing a summer job scooping ice cream or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that, you know, whatever you do over the summer, starting with that sense of what you want to get out of it. And so maybe if um, you have a job, maybe it's learning how to work with a supervisor or a specific skill or, you know, how to build your own business if that's the job that you have over the summer. Um, If you're taking a class, it's, 
maybe learning something new or building on an existing knowledge. Um, if it's an internship, you know, it's finding out if that field is a good match um, or maybe finding a specific segment of that field that excites you. Um, or maybe you're just spending the summer learning some sort of new skill. And so whatever it is that that you're doing, sitting down and saying, okay, what do I want to gain from this experience, I think can be really helpful in having a successful uh, summer experience. Yeah, having an intention, uh, having some goals related to that intention, I think that's really great advice because... I think some of the other things that can be challenging is maybe you have an internship that you think is going to be really great and then you get there and they haven't really prepared for you to be there and maybe they Mm -hmm. don't really have anything for you to do. If you already knew what you were hoping to get out of that internship, maybe you can suggest, well, hey, you don't really know what to do with me. How about if I try X? (laughs) And if you Mm -hmm. are prepared by being thoughtful, you might be in a better position to make a good suggestion in that case. So great advice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in terms of the nuts and bolts, are there some specific thoughts that you have around how to actually prepare, um, especially maybe for the first few days or the first week of that experience? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think that's a great question. And, and some of it varies based upon what the student is doing. But I think for most most of the time when someone asks this question, my thought goes immediately to the importance of being on time, <laughs> yeah. right? If you have a supervisor, they're definitely going to notice whether or not you show up on time. And I actually recommend when I talk to my students, they arrive at least five minutes early when possible, you know, and it's, some of it is, you know, also the, if you're running late, making sure that the, your supervisor knows, you know, bringing a notepad and pen into meetings when you go in with your yes. supervisor, you know, I think that, it will impress them that you're prepared and help you remember your assignments. Um, but I think ultimately it's, it's, you know, treating your experience with a level of seriousness and maturity. You know, jobs and internships can give you insight into your potential field um, if you're doing um, a job or an internship in the field that you're interested in and making the most of your experience. And so that means that you're embracing the tax the tasks that are given to you and making sure you finish them. And, you know, if you've mastered those and feel like you're able to take on more, you know, don't hesitate to ask for more. Um, And I think, you know, there's maybe a little bit more off topic, but also looking for opportunities to talk to people at that internship or job about their past. Right. You'll notice that Mm -hmm. there's a natural ebb and flow to the office. So maybe you'll have those opportunities in a break room or setting aside a specific time and kind of in your first few days identifying that. You don't have to come up with a plan for the whole summer about exactly who you're going to talk to and when, but trying to go in with your eyes open and saying, how can I make the most of this? How can I impress the people that I'm working with? Because, you know, it sounds very grown up, but they are going to be the start of your professional network, right? You want to make sure you leave a positive impression. Um, And remember that really no task is beneath you, right? There are some rules around internships, but embrace what, what, assignments you're given, ask for more if you can. Um, But I also think, you know, there are some students out there who are maybe doing something a little bit more self-directed, right, Mm -hmm. like that lawn mowing business or an online class or something like that. And for those students, you know, they're not going to have the structure necessarily of showing up on time and a notepad and all of that. And for those, you know, students I recommend in the first few days of summer is really creating a plan for what they're going to do, right? That schedule mm-hmm. can keep you on track. Finding someone who can make you accountable. You know, obviously, if you're a long-going business, if you don't mow a lawn, you're not going to get paid. <laughs> but <laughs> yep. having a plan 
to to tackle that, and that doesn't have to be your parent, right? It could be a friend or a relative. Um, so whatever it is, if you're building like a 3D model or you're starting a lawn mowing business or community advocacy or whatever it is, coming up with that structure for your days and your weeks can be really helpful. So I think there's nothing worse than looking back and wishing that you had been more productive with your time. Um, and I think some of that can apply to structured um, internships as well. Um, but I think it's easy to talk about, you know, coming in with that notepad and coming in on time when a lot of students are doing things that might be a little bit more self-directed. Right. And I, I love that idea. And I also love the whole point that you made about kind of doing the tasks that are asked of you. And of course, there are rules and you shouldn't be doing anything that is really unsafe. Um, but at the right. same time, you know, one one thing that I think can be very useful to you in life in general, right, is never being the person on at a in your career to say, well, that's not my job. There's probably nothing worse right. than someone saying, well, that's not my job. In a, in a great environment, mm-hmm. everyone sort of pitches in and helps out. And um, sometimes you do things that maybe don't fall into your job description. And you got to look at that as a great learning experience and a great opportunity to add a different skill, even if it's a skill you think you don't want to add to your skill set. You know, mm-hmm. maybe you don't want to become yeah. great at alphabetizing and filing, but um, if it's going to really help the office in, 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 in their area of need, <clears throat> then, you know, embrace it, be good at it. And, um, yeah. and if you can show that spirit yeah, in that, right, they're going to give you more. Yeah. Good stuff. Exactly. Hopefully. And I think that both of us remember those people who didn't chip in and didn't help yep. <laughs> more so. And that's not a positive thing. And you might work with those people someday or hire, you know, someone might be the person hiring you into your first time job out of college, right? Yep. You don't want to be that person. Exactly. Know? Exactly. So I think these are some awesome suggestions about kind of how to be thoughtful about the process itself. What, what thoughts do you have about, um, you know, kind of keeping track of what you're learning or um, your experiences and, and kind of helping you to, to be thoughtful about what you actually gained on the flip side of it once it's, once it's done? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that throughout the summer, you have to take some time to reflect You know, for my students, I encourage them to keep a daily journal of what they did and experienced. I recognize that that might not be realistic. It's probably that they do it every two days. I don't (laughs) hold them to account for that. But I think the point of that is to, you know, first is to really help them recognize growth points, um, to identify what might have excited them or maybe what didn't excite them as much about what they were doing, because I think this can help with identifying future opportunities, you know, what are right matches for them? What do they want to know more about? What do they want to try and avoid? Um, And, you know, for my younger students, um, the ones who are more rising sophomores and juniors, um, I actually have them write an essay reflecting on their experience. Um, Not something that's super short, but shouldn't be longer than, say, 650 words, which I know sounds familiar maybe to some of our listeners because that's (laughs) the length of a personal statement for college. But the point of that is that it's really just practice um, because it's a reflective, you know, piece of writing. Um, And yes, it's in some ways similar to the college essay, but it's not your actual college essay. It's just having them reflect in a structured way 
and practice that writing for a college essay, right? Um, but mm-hmm. for my rising seniors, they don't ask for that, right? So they're already writing their personal statement. Um, but I think having some sort of self-imposed assignment, um, be it journaling or some sort of reflection that you do at the end, maybe it's your last day, maybe it's the day after your last day, where you really sit and reflect and think about what you learned. And for a lot of students and for a lot of people, sometimes writing that down can be helpful in some way, shape, or form so that when it's you know, midwinter and you're trying to figure out what to do with your next summer, you can go back to what your notes were and say, oh, right, that's what I said I wanted to do next summer. I don't remember after (laughs) sports and the classes and everything that you're going through over the fall. Um, So I think doing something um, is definitely really helpful to remember what what you learned and what you want to learn in the future. Yeah, and, and I would also add that um, one thing I have my students doing is keeping an extracurricular activities grid and where they just keep mm-hmm. track of what they did um, and it's everything that they do outside of the classroom, right? So it could be the sports they play or the newspaper they're writing for. And I have them add their summer experience to that grid as well. So that um, so I would yeah. encourage that. And, and this is the place uh, when it's fresh in your mind where you can capture how many weeks did it last, how many many hours per week was it? Just some nuts and bolts stuff that is easy to forget. And then you wind up kind of, um, mm-hmm. you know, winging it a, a little bit when it comes time to actually complete it in the application. Whereas if you're, if you capture that information immediately, then you will have gotten it more mm-hmm. factually correct, which is always a positive. Yeah. Um, What about, um, you know, one other thing that sometimes is helpful to walk away with could be a recommendation letter. And so what are your thoughts about, you know, do you ask for one? How would you handle Mm -hmm. something like that? Yeah, I mean, I think that the the short answer is that probably not for the purposes of a college application, Mm -hmm. right? So if you're a younger student, it's probably not going to be that helpful if you're, you know, a rising sophomore. Um, but really, I think that, you know, it depends upon the schools that the student is applying to, right? So for my rising seniors, I, you know, they would look at their college list, right? Hopefully by mid-end of summer, they have a pretty solid list. And I hope that they're researching in an organized fashion where they can quickly look at their Excel document to see how many letters of recommendation their schools are looking for and who the college wants them to be from, right? Because the vast majority mm-hmm. of colleges, you know, as we've talked about, you know, they want that core academic subject recommendation, right? And some colleges may not allow for additional letters of recommendations or have strict parameters around who you can ask for, um, ask them from. So, you know, you really have to know the schools that you're applying to um, because, you know, that person may not add value to that application, right? More is not better in the case of letters of recommendation. Yes. So if the school says they want one, sending six in for each activity that you've done or summer activity, that's not really going to be helpful, you know, nor is necessarily asking the professors who taught your, um, you know, college summer program economics class, right? That's not even if they're the professor at the school you're applying to, you know, your junior year teacher is going to be a much better letter of recommendation. Um, the admissions officers are not going to be impressed by that. But, of course, you know, there are some students that it does make sense for. Mm-hmm. Right? Maybe you've been researching in the lab over the year and then stepped up your time over the summer. Or you're applying to a specific program that's looking for letters of recommendation in addition to, you know, those outside of the sort of standard 
academic letters of recommendation, but think very critically about whether or not this will actually add to your application. Um, you know, if it's a week-long program, you don't know the person very well, that's not likely to add to that. But I also want to make the note that just because it might not be a good idea for your college application doesn't mean that this person couldn't be a great reference for mm-hmm. a future job or internship. Right. right. So those are kind of two different things. <laughs> right. And and I will say sometimes people will offer to write you a letter of recommendation. And I think that's always um, a, an amazing thing because it typically indicates that they were impressed enough that they wanted to mm-hmm. share that. Um, and what you could do is you could, you know, sort of say, yeah, that'd be great. And you could have that letter sent to your guidance counselor who could potentially incorporate mm-hmm. that person's thoughts into their letter of support. Or if it fits some of the 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 um, suggestions you just made, Lauren, where it actually might be um, an, a nice one additional letter of recommendation for an older student, it might be appropriate um, for for your college application. So it's a case-by-case basis, but if they offer to write you one, um, you may want to take them up on, you know, getting something from that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, and that's you a know, really any, good sign. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, as we as we wrap up, any final thoughts um, on on making the most of your summer? I think there was some great suggestions that you had. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I would say come up with some sort of plan to stay in touch with your mentors and other people that you've met. You know, maybe that's starting a LinkedIn profile and connecting that way. You know, like I said, these could be your future colleagues or be a resource when you're looking for a future opportunity. Um, you know, I also encourage you when you, you're done with an internship or a job, see if you can get feedback. Hopefully you're getting feedback all the way through. But, you know, really connecting in a substantial way and trying to figure out how you might be able to move forward in this field if that's what you're looking to do. If you started your own business, hopefully you have a record of the people that, you know, if you, you mowed their lawns, the homes that you worked with, so you can grow that business next year. So really just taking stock of what you've done and figure out how to um, really grow those relationships in the future, maybe. Um, mm-hmm. And then to, you know, I mean, we've touched on this just a little bit, but consider how you might want to spend next summer when the experience is still fresh in your mind, right? So that idea that we talked about a little bit of writing down your growth and what you um, learned from the experience, but also thinking forward. So not just reflecting, but saying, okay, what might I want to do next summer? You have a quite a few months to come up with that. But while it's fresh in your mind, it's a good idea to kind of say, okay, where do I want to go from here, given the experience that I had this summer? Yep. I think that's great advice. Lauren, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right, we're going to take a short break. And then when we get back, I'm going to share some of my thoughts on the adversity score and we're going to answer your questions. So don't go away. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, 
how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody, to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Um, We're going to be getting to your questions here shortly, but um, I first wanted to address something that's been in the news a lot lately, and I've seen a lot of concern and parental angst and student angst, quite honestly, about this. And um, I sort of don't blame everyone, um, and it's related to, or not related, it's the... um, what I would consider very unfortunately named adversity score that the college board announced um, a couple of weeks ago. And essentially what they announced is that they have created um, what they're calling an environmental context dashboard um, that offers an adversity score on a uh, scale of one to 100. And um, Essentially, it's going to assign uh, an adversity score to students based on the school that they attend, and it's going to accompany their SAT score. So not all colleges are are offering this um, right now. They had an initial pilot of about, I think it was 50 colleges, and this year there are going to be another um, 200 colleges using it, and then when that's done and the college board assumes that it's worked out all the kinks, um, they will then make it available as a free resource to all colleges in the country. Um, If you want my thoughts on how well College Board works out the kinks, you could check out our blog. I wrote a blog about um, this new adversity score and the fact that the College Board is attached to it. I'm not super excited about that. Um, But I did want to talk a little bit more nuts and bolts for those of you who have concerns um, about this. Uh, So I think for me, the first big question is, what what issues does this solve? And um, one of the big issues that it does solve is that uh, all high schools are meant to have a high school profile and that shares information about the school and the context Um, of where the school is located. Is it urban? Is it suburban? Is it um, rural? Um, The percentage of students who go on to four-year colleges, um, the average SAT scores or ACT scores for that school, um, what what higher level coursework is available. Um, And the issue is that there really is no standard school profile. And some schools provide all of that information and then some, and other schools don't even provide what I just shared. So what that means as an admissions officer is that if you're reading an application that's coming in from a school that you're not super familiar with, you really have to rely on that school profile to provide additional information. And you are really at the mercy of how much information is 
included in that profile. So it does solve that issue. And um, it also provides what is often some much needed additional context for the admissions officer. Um, And then it also provides hard data that is easy to digest and is less susceptible to personal bias. So in other words, one one thing that we heard, um, Yale was uh, one of the participants in the pilot and what um, the Dean of Admissions at Yale shared was that um, they sort of understood context previously, but having an actual hard number attached um, made it a little bit easier to more factually and removing your own personal thoughts out of the equation, kind of identify um, what kind of environment the student was currently attending school in. Um, at the same time, of course, while it solves some issues, it also creates issues. Um, A huge one is the lack of transparency. So you have no idea what your score is. um, And um, it doesn't feel good to have something in your file that you have no idea what it is. With recommendation letters, typically you don't know what is in those recommendation letters, but you at least have chosen the writers. Um, You should have a fairly good understanding of your relationship with those writers. And in general, recommendation letters are really strong. They really are um, supportive of students. Um, But here we have this piece of data that's going to be added in that you have no idea what it is. Um, So if you have in any way, shape or form some concerns about it, um, you can't address them because you have no idea what you're addressing. (laughs) Um, There's really no true sense yet of how the number will be used, right? We, We know what the colleges are saying about how they used it, but you don't really have a good sense of how it's going to be used. Um, So that's Uh, also scary. And I think that really plays into the lack of transparency piece. Um, And another piece of transparent lack of transparency is we don't know which colleges are participating. Um, Although, as I mentioned earlier, after this year, it's going to be a free resource available to all colleges. So we can probably assume that all colleges will have access to it and likely use it, although we won't know that for sure. Um, It also, for me, doubles down on this idea that somehow it's a negative to not have experienced adversity because a lot of the outcry that I'm hearing um, just kind of anecdotally is coming from families where they do live in relatively um, prosperous areas. Um, The students have not faced a lot of adversity and it, it kind of underscores this idea, and I've had students say this to me before, well, I don't know what I'm going to write about in my essay because nothing bad has ever happened to me. Um, The goal here is, you know, you really should be thankful if you're not facing adversity and if nothing bad has ever happened to you. I, I think those are positives. It's really the colleges aren't looking for sob stories. They're just trying to really understand the context in which students are performing and to understand that even though their test score might be slightly lower than the average seen in their applicant pools, it might be significantly higher than the average at the school that they attend or in the community that they are living. And that helps provide context of the ways in which this student is actually really excelling within the confines of their community and and their backgrounds, theoretically. Um, But finally, let's get to the big thing, which is really how is this going to impact you as an applicant or how is this going to impact your child um, as the parent of an applicant? And what I end up coming back to is really, honestly, not much. 
Um, as noted, this is context, not personal. So the the adversity score is really is not based on any personal information of your child. It is strictly based on the contextual elements of the community surrounding the student. Um, the other thing is that the more selective the school, the more context is required. So they're you know at the most selective levels, they're never going to be looking at this number. Um, on its own and using that as their only way of defining context. They're also asking for essays. They're also asking for recommendation letters. Um, They are looking at a much broader picture. For the schools where perhaps it is fairly nuts and bolts based, where it's really based on grades and test scores and not a whole lot else, it actually is going to help those who are applying from schools that are perhaps less familiar to those colleges. And so I actually could see it being a little bit more of a positive in the processes where they aren't really asking for a whole lot of context. Um, And then I I also think if you're from an area that is um, routinely sending students to um, a lot of these high profile schools, which again, this is the place, these are the places where I'm seeing the most concern. The reality is the colleges don't need more context for your area. So it's not going to be a negative um, if the student has a lower adversity score um, because they already know. Um, And I don't want to pick on any particular area, but if you come and live in an area that's fairly well to do and and, um, there isn't a lot of adversity typically, um, the colleges are aware of that already. So it's not like the adversity score is suddenly bringing that to light for them. Um, So uh, there's surely going to be more to come here on this front, but I did want to share our thoughts on this. Um, And we welcome your questions for future questions. Q&A sessions um, about this. But speaking of Q&A sessions, um, I am excited to welcome my colleague, Shannon Vasconcellos, who's a former financial aid officer at Tufts and at Boston University uh, today to answer some of our finance-related questions. Hi, Shannon. Hi, Beth. I want to jump right in since I just um, took a bunch of time from away from what we had allotted for Q&A. Um, and our first question comes to us from Jean, who asks a very broad question, how do I find scholarships? Yeah, so, so that is definitely a big question. And we have done many, you know, host segments on this topic. So I would definitely advise Jean to search our archive. Um, there's lots and lots of great information about um, how to get scholarships um, on many, many of our episodes. But the, the short and sweet of it is the best source of scholarship money is really the colleges themselves. Um, so for non-seniors who are still in the college search process, I would look for colleges where you are going to stand out, you know, where your grades and test scores are above average. Um, they, those colleges are going to really want to recruit you uh, and so will offer you money to try to get you there. So apply to more um, what most people call safety schools, you know, for you. Those are really going to be the best source of scholarship funding. Um, now, beyond the colleges themselves, there are, you know, thousands of organizations out there that award scholarships to students that they can take to any school and they can come from, you know, businesses and community groups and professional associations, you know, all sorts of places. Um, So you can search for those scholarships online. There are a number of scholarship search sites out there. Uh, Scholarships.com happens to be my favorite of them. Um, 
But you do want to be kind of realistic. Any big national scholarship that you find online is going to be very competitive, Um, you know, with thousands of kids all across the country Mm -hmm. uh, applying to all these same scholarships. Your chances of winning any given scholarship tends to be slim. So you may want to be kind of selective about those, you know, big online scholarships that you you do choose to pursue. Uh, Local scholarships can be a better source of funding because the applicant pool is just automatically narrowed down for you. You stand a better chance of winning. So local scholarships do tend to be very worth your time to apply for. So I would check in with your high school guidance counselor, um, the students' employers, the parents' employers, uh, local community groups that, that you or your family member uh, is, is a member of. You know, anything that you have some connection to already uh, and you can't just be any person off the street to apply for uh, is, is going to be easier to win than some big national scholarship that you find off of a search engine. So I would say, again, to, to kind of sum up a big topic, you know, in terms of priorities, the first is the colleges themselves. They offer the big money, so apply to some safety schools. Uh, next would be pursuing local scholarships. And then finally, you know, if you have the time and energy, that's when you would launch a, a larger scale uh, online search. Awesome. All right. Sounds good. All Thank right. you. All righty. And I have a question for you, Beth. And this is hot off the presses uh, news. The University of Virginia just announced that they will offer early decision uh, application process for this coming fall. They say it will neither advantage nor disadvantage applicants. What do you think, Beth? Well, with all due respect to University of Virginia, um, I think that's hard to believe. Um, If it's not going to advantage anybody, there's no reason that they would introduce it, um, in my opinion. Uh, And I guess what they will probably say is that um, we're giving students for whom Virginia is truly their number one choice an opportunity to tell us that. And okay, that's fine. Um, The reality is that if you look at statistical information for any school that offers early decision, it is often, not always, but often the um, has the highest acceptance rate. The reason why early decision might not have the highest the highest acceptance rate is that um, at schools like Virginia that are now going to offer early decision and early action. And just for our listeners' sake, early decision is a binding program. If you apply through early decision and they admit you, you are going to commit yourself to that school and withdraw all of your other applications. So in theory, it's a 100% yield for them. And so um, what we can see sometimes at schools that offer both early decision and early action is that the early decision acceptance rate sometimes is actually lower than the early action acceptance rate. And what I would attribute that to is that not as many students who the school sees as qualified students who they want to have in their class are applying through the early decision um, avenue and um, that they are maybe seeing more of them applying via early action. But what I have also seen is that that doesn't always hold for all that long so that um, eventually what happens when you introduce early decision is that you can make your school a little bit more selective. And um, I don't know, you know, University of Virginia is already very selective. I'm not sure what the impetus was behind 
introducing early decision, but um, what I would say is that it is likely to offer an advantage to students who apply in the early decision round because you are committing to them. Um, There's more of an incentive for them to accept you. And if they start filling more of their class in early decision, it ultimately disadvantages the students who either choose not to commit to Virginia in that early round or who can't because they need to compare financial aid offers from um, other schools so that, you know, because they can't commit to paying for it. And that is really who ends up getting um, the most hurt in this process. And full disclosure, I'm not against early decision. Um, I I don't think it's a bad program, but it is sort of, um, I guess I just wish Virginia hadn't outright said, we don't think it's going to advantage or disadvantage anyone because that feels really disingenuous to me. All right. We have time for one more before we go to break. And this comes to us from Jan, who says, since I'm not going to qualify for need-based grants, should I still take the time to do the FAFSA? And related to this, are there any merit scholarships that require the FAFSA to be filed? This feels like an evergreen. I know. We get this question all the time. So first of all, nobody is required to file a FAFSA. So Jan doesn't want to. She doesn't have to. Some people get the the misimpression that it's just a basic requirement. It is not. You only need to file the FAFSA if you're applying for need-based financial aid, generally. Um, So the first thing I would say before you consider not filing a FAFSA is you want to be absolutely sure you're not going to qualify for need-based financial aid. You want to make sure that you're not just taking somebody else's worth word for it, you know, your neighbor didn't qualify, so you assume you're not going to qualify, do a net price calculator on each college's website to make sure you're not going to qualify. If that is the case, um, you don't have to do the FAFSA. Reasons you might want to consider doing it is might your financial situation change? You know, you don't Mm -hmm. qualify for aid right now, but could you lose your job tomorrow? There are some schools that might not consider a subsequent application for aid if you didn't apply initially. So it might be good just to get one on file. Um, The other thing that that Jan actually references, it it is a pretty rare policy, but there are some schools that do require a FAFSA to even consider you for merit scholarships. So again, it is something I would check into uh, before deciding not to fill out the FAFSA, check the school's website, make sure it is not required to be considered for merit scholarships. Usually isn't, but there are a few schools that do have that requirement. And then the other reason you might want to fill out a FAFSA is if you want to give your child some skin in the game and have them take out some student loans to help pay for college, the FAFSA is required to borrow any of the government student loans. So those are the reasons you might want to consider filling out the FAFSA. You never have to, but those are the reasons you might want to. Awesome. Shannon, thank you so much. We are going to take a quick break uh, and then we're going to get right back to our listener questions. uh, So don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. 
Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, we are answering your questions, and um, we're going to get right back into it. And Shannon, let's start with another question for you. Um, And this one comes to us from Rebecca. Will it help to get more money if I move my son's savings into our account? Ah, the... Uh, It might, (laughs) Rebecca, but it's also illegal, so you probably don't want to do that. Um, So the issue here is that... Student assets are assessed more harshly than parent assets in the financial aid formula. Uh, the theory being, you know, parents have other things they need to take care of with their money. They can't devote it all to college, whereas students don't really have other financial responsibilities to a large extent. You know, everything they've got could be going to college. Um, so, so that's the issue that it sounds like Rebecca um, has learned, maybe from listening to this show. Um, so for families that might qualify for financial aid, it is better to save in the parent's name than in the student's name. Now, if you already have money saved in your child's name, like it sounds like Rebecca does, you are not supposed to simply take it out of their account, put it in yours. Um, if, if you're as old as, as you and I are, Beth, and you remember the mm-hmm. child actors, Macaulay Culkin, Gary Colbert suing their parents, well, it was actually over stuff like this. No, it wasn't financial aid related at all, but the parents took the kids' money out of their account, put it in their own account. That is not allowed. Once the money is in the kids' account, it's their money, the parents who are normally the custodians of the account, but as custodian, you can only withdraw money uh, from the kid's account to spend on things for the kid. Now, if you've got some time, um, you can sort of practically swap out where the money is held um, by withdrawing from the kid's account whenever you have expenses for them. So it might be things, you know, like school trips and hockey equipment, college application fees, um, you know, if you were going to buy your child a new computer or a car, you know, anything like that. Things that the parents were planning on buying anyway, um, 
Instead of buying things with your money, parents, buy it with the kids' money. Meanwhile, stick the money that, of yours that you were going to spend on the kids and stick it in a savings account in your name. So that way you're spending down the kids' account on legitimate expenses for them. You're A-OK legally. And then saving the equivalent amount in your account. So the net effect is the same as moving you know, your son's money into your account, but it's all on the up and up. Um, so that's one one thing to do to kind of eliminate the student asset problem um, for financial aid purposes. The other alternative is moving your son's money into what they call a custodial 529 if you were sure that you were going to use the money for college. So a 529 is a college savings account. If it's a custodial 529, that's a college savings account that your child legally owns. It's not like the usual way to set up a 529 where the parent owns the account. The custodial 529, the child still owns the money, which you would think it would really help you, that it would still get the harsher financial aid treatment because the kid still owns the money. But there's actually this weird quirk in the federal financial aid regulations that say all 529s owned by either the student or the parent are all considered parent assets for financial aid purposes, and parent assets get a gentler treatment. Um, So now there are some schools that don't abide by the federal financial aid formula, colleges that use the CSS profile financial aid application in addition to the FAFSA that we've talked about a lot on this show. Mm -hmm. Um, So it doesn't work everywhere, but most colleges just use the FAFSA, so moving the money into a custodial 529 will actually work at most schools for kind of eliminating this, this student asset problem. It works at most schools. The other strategies, you know, just spending down the money to effectively kind of flip the ownership, that should really work everywhere. So you can't just straight up take the money out of the account, put it in yours, but there are a couple of different strategies you could use to kind of eliminate this problem, Rebecca. All right. Awesome. Okay. So I have got a question for you. Um, and it's a little long. There's some background here. So we want to take a look at what's going on here. So this is from Jennifer. It says, my child is a high achiever and gifted in mathematics, scored 1,500 on the PSAT, 36 on the ACT with very little prep. He finished high school AP Calc BC in his sophomore year, scoring fives on both the AB and BC test. He has been an A honor roll student until this year when he became ill the first semester uh, of his junior year. He was taking both high school courses and college courses when he became ill. Something had to give so we could keep him focused on getting better, and it was one of the college courses. Not understanding that we should have had him drop the class because no one explained this to us at the school, uh, he now has a glooming F on his transcript, which equals a full year. His high school was able to work with him to get him through the semester with passing grades, not A's, but passing. Uh, how do we proceed for college admissions, scholarships, etc.? He was asked to apply for the National Hispanic Scholarship. However, his GPA is now just under the required score. Is it worth applying? Should he give up any hope for selective schools now? Um, the best news is he is better. Uh, his grades are moving back up this semester, and hopefully he will have a great fall of 2019. Well, I think you identified right there, Jennifer, at the very end, the best part of this, which is that he is better, which is 
excellent news and of course the best possible news because none of this is matters one little bit if you don't have your health um so uh, there is there are a lot of challenges here. I think probably first and foremost is whenever a student who has been trucking along and doing super well and um, has lots of collected lots of great accolades um, suddenly has a stumble and you didn't really explain how bad, but the fact that you said passing grades makes me think, you know, it could be as bad as he went from straight A's to straight C's um, or possibly worse. I don't know. Um, He did pass uh, other than the one class in which he received the F. Um, The good news there is that there is at least a good explanation. Some students, this happens to them and there really isn't anything you can point to beyond just, I don't know, got lazy, stopped doing homework, whatever, had a personal, you know, relationship go south and, and couldn't really focus on their studies. Those those things tend to play not so well with colleges versus um, at least there's an explanation. Um, your son got sick. You can provide that explanation and maybe some of the details of um, of what was involved. You don't really share that here, which is totally fine. But, you know, if he was in the hospital or um, if he was bedridden or couldn't go to school, however many classes he had to miss, you know, it's definitely important to provide the context. We talked about, I talked about context a little earlier today, but provide the context for that. Um, you know, you say, is should he give up all hope for selective schools? Um, and I'm not really sure what you mean by selective schools. But A, I would say no. Um, you know, he's got that 36 ACT and he had all the A's previously and um, hopefully will return to form this year. Or it sounds like he already was in the second semester, but return to form in addition in the first half of his Um, senior year. And he hopefully can identify teachers who can write in support of his strong abilities in the classroom. Uh, The most selective level, you know, if we're talking Ivies and Stanford and MIT, he could be, it could be tough. Um, Again, you can, I wouldn't suggest that he maybe doesn't apply, but I would think you need to be realistic because there are just too many students. And quite honestly, there might be some who were also sick and who managed to make it through with better grades, which feels like a terrible thing to say, but is just the truth when you're looking at applicant uh, acceptance rates in the you know, under 5% range, it just is hard to imagine how, um, e- you know, how to make too many allowances for a student when you have so many other unbelievably strong students who are, you're then going to turn away as well. Um, so it's tough to say with specific regard to the one scholarship you ask about, I don't know enough about the scholarship to say, but if they do have cutoffs, um, it might be worth actually placing a call to someone there and explaining what happened with the GPA and um, what they might say is go ahead and apply anyway and um, submit an explanation for what happened in that um, in junior year. Uh, and so it may not prevent him. I think what you just have to recognize here is that um, there's going to need to be more work that goes into explaining what happened and um, more time spent with his guidance counselor to make sure that um, he or she is backing up the challenges that he faced. Um, and then finally, with regard to the F, I would say that um 
if it's possible for him to retake the class, I don't know how the school would handle that, but what they might do is pre- pre- present both grades and explain that, you know, he really just couldn't give any attention to this one course because he was so sick, um, but he's retaken it and done extraordinarily well, and that can often um, make up for the fact that he has the F on there. Um, so not a not a great situation, but I would certainly not say that all is lost, and I think there are probably a lots of positives to come out of this and certainly ways to address it um, because you have something specific to hold on to, um, which is good. Um, All right. Shannon, another question uh, comes from Bonnie. My sister lives in a state where my child is applying to the in-state public university. Can we use her address to get in-state tuition? I'm going to guess no, but I want to hear your answer. <laughs> you, you could, but like like the last question I answered, it's illegal, so you probably don't want to. Um, basically, you know, if you have a different address listed on an admissions application than, um, than say, on, you know, your high school transcript, you're going to have some explaining to do, you know, like how did you manage to get to school every day in this state when your address says you live in this other state across the country. You better have mm-hmm. a, a darn good explanation for that. So every state's policy is a little different, but generally um, the student's residence is based on the parent's residence. Wherever the parents live, that's where the student is considered to be living if they're a dependent undergraduate student. And 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 so, and you have to have usually in most states, you have to have lived there for at least a year before you qualify for in-state tuition. So that's the usual policy. There's always exceptions. So definitely check the school's, you know, residency policy specifically, but but don't lie about it. Um, we have seen lately in the news what can happen if you yes. lie on admissions applications. So <laughs> just you know, either pay the out-of-state tuition, um, or you know, if you're looking for a better deal, consider your home state public. Uh, universities. Uh, you definitely, I, I don't think the lesson you want to teach your child as they're going off to, to college is to, you know, how to break the law to, to save a buck. So, so I would say do not use your, um, your sister's address. That is, it is not a good thing to be doing. Yeah, and I and actually on a sobering note, is there actually are I believe two women currently in prison for using, and I actually find that somewhat appalling, but um, not somewhat oh, appalling, well. very appalling for using different addresses than their own, so that their kids yeah. could go to better schools, high schools, oh, well. um, and. Yeah. Um, you know, in light of what these parents did with Operation Varsity Blues and what limited jail time some of them may serve, if any, the fact that these women are in jail for doing something to just get their kids out of what was a bad situation. Um, I don't know. Well, it raises a whole host of other issues. Shannon, thank you so much for joining us today and, and giving us some great answers to listener questions. I really appreciate it. You are so welcome. My pleasure. All right, and thanks also to Lauren, my guest for our first segment. Next week, Sally is here, um, and she is going to be talking about the Common App prompts for the coming year, um, how and what to research regarding money on college websites, and also um, summer college visits and how to conduct those with supplemental essays in the back of your mind, because those are potentially going to be helpful when you're writing those. Um And uh, if you have questions, send them to us, gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. And don't forget, we're here every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a college coach conversation. 
hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.